The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Frederick Nietzsche, um, who was a 19th century atheist and opponent of the gospel, uh, famously declared, God is dead. And this struck a chord with a lot of fellow atheists of his day. He went on later to say about Christ and about those who would follow him, about Christians. Look at whom they worship. Look at this God whom they worship. How foolish and imbecilic to follow one who died and then to claim that death is victory. There is foolishness and then there is foolishness. There is madness and there is madness. But to call death victory is the ultimate madness of all. This is a pathetic deity, and he is followed by a pathetic people. You need to understand today that you gather here with a world outside that is right now saying that you are a pathetic people. That I am a pathetic person because we are following a pathetic deity. The sermon title this morning is... Only a fool would follow a crucified Christ. Now, let me couch that just for you just a little bit. Albert Moeller, who is the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, he went on and he also said this. Every person will be one kind of fool or the other. We are going to be one variety of fool, the fool who rejects the knowledge of God Or the other kind of fool who is foolish before the world because of allegiance to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Which is better to bear the scorn of the world as a fool and to know the wisdom of the cross or to embrace worldly wisdom and be shown to be a fool on the day when every act and deed and thought will be revealed and all things will be made known to all. Every one of us will be somebody's fool. The world, if you stand for Christ, will call you a fool. We come together on this day of this week and we celebrate not the resurrection yet, as Ethan has done a great job in holding off our celebration of the resurrection. But on this day, we celebrate the week of him going to the cross. And we look at this one who we follow and we give our lives to and knowing full well that at the end of this week of his life, He will be nailed to a cross and he will breathe his last and his cold, dead body will be put into a tomb. And the world will say to us, you are fools. You are following a dead man whose life came to nothing. He didn't accomplish what he set out to accomplish. But I want to show you today that even in his death prior to the resurrection, he did indeed Accomplish what he set out to do. Go with me to Mark chapter 15. I invite you to take your copy of God's word and turn with me to Mark chapter 15. We go back and we will finish out this book over the next three weeks. We will there are three more sermons in this book of Mark. And many of you have looked for these last days in Mark. You have thought this book is never going to end. He keeps adding chapters to it. Well, no, I haven't. 
there's 16. There have been 16 from the beginning, and we are just about to enter into 16. And the week after Easter, Lord willing, we will finish the book of Mark. But hasn't it been good? Won't it have been good to say that we systematically walked through verse by verse the book of Mark, the word of God together? It's good because you don't need you don't need to hear from any man, any preacher, what he cleverly comes up with as he looks to culture and, and decides that that's what you need. What you need is what God has already said. And so let's look at this today. Mark chapter 15. And let's look at verses 42 to 47. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was indeed dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. We come to this text this morning and we see, first of all, the reality of Jesus' death. That he really did die. And there are those who would say to you that Jesus never really died. Some would even deny that he ever really lived. Meanwhile, there's more historical evidence for the life and the death of Jesus Christ than there are for most U.S. presidents, world leaders, to deny his life and even his death is ludicrous. There are those who would say to you that he didn't really die, he simply swooned, that he fainted. And he came under such duress. He came under such emotional and physical torture that there on the cross that he simply fainted, that he went unconscious. And they took him down and they placed him into this tomb. And later in the cool air, the cool, damp air of the tomb, he was revived. And then he walked out of that tomb after he came back to. Well, that's foolish. Let me just call it what it is. That's stupid. To think that a man could take what Jesus took. And all that we have seen and all that has been proven out through history that he took in leading up to the cross and those hours on the cross and to think that he simply passed out and then came back to and walked out of the tomb, which, by the way, had a heavy stone rolled against the door, too heavy for one man to open. And then he, he subdued those guards, those Roman soldiers, with all of their artillery. And then he walked past them and disappeared into history. It's ludicrous. It's stupid. There's a reality here that is so much more sensible And it is that he really died. I thought about this and I thought about what are those things that we use in modern society to confirm death, 
One of those things that come along with it, you don't have to have watched too many episodes of ER or or private practice or any of those shows to know that there is a point when someone's heart activity stops or their brain activity stops and the doctor will call the time of death. Outside of that, there is another method that you and I use that to confirm death, and that is when the coroner is called in. Some professional is called in and he confirms that the person is actually literally dead. And there is still one more trapping that we use to confirm for us, to give closure to us when someone has died, and that is a funeral. And I would willingly submit to you that in our text today, Jesus Christ has all three of those things. That There is a time of death. Look at the first verse. Look at verse 42. Verse 42, when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath. Here, this is pointed out to us here because in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23, there is a requirement that anyone who is found guilty of a capital crime and is, it is, and is punished by death by hanging him on a tree, that his body will be removed from the tree that day and will be buried that same day. It was a defilement. It was breaking the law for them to leave the body on the cross longer than that day. So it comes near to the end of the day, and it's near evening. The day ends at 6 p.m. in that Jewish society. And so just before the starting of the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea goes and asks for the body so that he can bury it. And while we don't have exactly the time, it may not be 321. It may not be 458. We know that on that Friday... At some time in the afternoon, early evening, Jesus breathed his last. That he bowed his head after crying, it is finished. And he gave up his life. There is a time of death here. Not only that, but there is a professional confirmation. It's no coroner, but it is the soldiers. The soldiers are professional executioners. They are familiar with what it is for a person to die. They know when life is no longer in the body. They are good at it. They are good at it. We had a man in our, in our church that I came from in Georgia. We called him Crazy Greg. And Crazy Greg was a favorite of mine. We called him crazy because you never knew what he was going to do. Greg one day, um, good on April Fool's, but I don't know that it was April Fool's. It was just always something with Greg. Uh, Greg was... Married to to his wife, and she was a very serious woman, and and uh, she loved to have fun, but she was very serious, and and he was always playing pranks on her. Well, one day he, she came into the house, and uh, and he was laying in the floor, and he had taken a cup of water and he had poured the water all over himself, and he was just laying in the floor. She called to him and she said, "Greg, Greg," and she went over to him and she kicked him. <laughs> And he loves to tell that part of the story. She kicked him. And when she kicked him, he held back the grunt that he wanted to release. And he just let his body move. Greg! And she ran to the phone, and he's hearing all this. And she ran to the phone, and she picks up the phone, and she hears the three, doot, doot, doot. And just before she could have the operator pick up, he said, Oh, hang the phone up. Another time later on, they were in their bed together. 
And they were about to go to sleep and she was reading. And just before they turned the lights off for the night, he began to convulse in the bed. And pretend that he was having a seizure and then he just went limp. And that time she didn't fall for it. She just smacked him and said, turn your lamp off. Now, if I were to walk in, I'd be like Debbie. I'd walk in on Greg and see him in the floor with the pool of water all around him and think that he's gone. He's dead. But you can make sure that these guards, these professional executioners, they didn't make any mistakes. They knew when a person was dead. I want you to notice here how many times, how many times that Mark here draws attention to the fact that he's dead. The first time, back in verse 43, Joseph of Arimathea goes and asks for not Jesus, but he asks for what? His body. And Pilate is surprised to hear that he should have already what? Died. So Pilate sends for the centurion and asks, has he indeed already died? The centurion comes back and says, yes, indeed, he is already dead. And Pilate, upon hearing the news that he is dead, he grants Joseph not the life, not the person, but the corpse. Why does Mark repeat this so many times? Why does he, on five different occasions, point out to us that Jesus is, indeed is really dead? Well, it's just that, that he wants there to be no mistaking. He wants you to know that Jesus did indeed die. In fact, we learn from another gospel that the soldiers went to break the legs of those who were on the cross that day. They did this so that the person could no longer push themselves up and gain air. And they would speed up the dying process this way. But when they came to Jesus, they learned that he was already dead. So they didn't break his legs. And one of the guards at the foot of the cross took this spear and he shoved it through the side of Jesus. And immediately the Bible says a mixture of water and blood flowed from his side. And this is indeed a medical um, reality. That when the heart literally ruptures the blood fills the sac around the heart and fills the pericardium and water, this watery lymphatic fluid mixes with blood and it comes out. And this is indeed what happened. And it proves to us that Jesus really did die. There is a time of death. There is a confirmation of death. And then there's also a funeral. This man, Joseph of Arimathea. He and Nicodemus are the only ones that attend this funeral. Mark does not mention Nicodemus here. Only, well, John does. John in 1939 says that Nicodemus was there also. These men are called secret disciples. They're, they've been following Jesus from a distance. Not wanting anyone to know that they truly were following this man. But in his death, before his resurrection... They come out of the closet, if you will. And they take Jesus' body down from the cross. And the Bible says here in verse 46 that they wrapped him in this linen shroud. And they placed him in this tomb, which, by the way, was Joseph's tomb. This tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And they rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Can I just ask you, is there anything, anything more final than that? 
Is there anything more final than hearing that rock, that stone slam against its stop? Is there anything more final than when you stand at the graveside of your loved one and see them close the casket in the funeral service or see them move the dirt back over the the coffin? Is there anything more final than that? Jesus here is really dead. There is the reality here of death. Let there be no mistaking that Jesus really did die. But why? We are left with this question, why? Why did he die? Because those out there that are skeptics and atheists and agnostics would say to us, but that still doesn't do anything for your faith. In our eyes, you're still following a man who crashed and burned in the end. Why would Jesus die? Well, some would say that Jesus died because he was found guilty of treason. He was crucified as a felon. That his teachings were considered to be dangerous and subversive to not only the religious system in Israel, in Jerusalem in particular, but also that his teaching was dangerous and subversive to the the Roman establishment, the government and the peace there that they had in Israel. His teaching threatened that and they put an end to it. And that's all there was to it. That's why he died. But I would ask you the question, is that really what happened? Is that really why Jesus died? And I would say no. The evidence points to the contrary. We can, in fact, go all the way back through Scripture. We could start from this point and work our way backward. We could walk back through this, this some 1,500 years of Scripture. 1,500 years before Jesus died. And look and see instances that have pointed to the fact that when the Messiah came, he would indeed die. Jesus himself in Mark 10, 45, said the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You go back from that and you go to Isaiah 53 and and you look at our verse. We've been memorizing all month long, all last month that talks about us all going astray like sheep, each going to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You can look at instances in Scripture that are not just stories, but that are true. You look at. Instances like Jonah. What's the story of Jonah all about? Unless it is really about when Jonah is swallowed by the fish and spit out of the fish onto dry land. Is it not really a picture of the fact that Jesus would die, that he would be placed into the earth and that three days later the earth would spit him back out again? You can look at pictures like Rahab, the the prostitute who harbored the spies when they were sent into the land. She hid them away. And then when no one was looking, she let down the scarlet rope and let them out the window. What is that scarlet rope unless it is a picture of the blood of Christ that would be spilled to rescue all those who would trust in him? You can look at Moses in the wilderness when they those Israelites were were grumbling and complaining. Why did you bring us out into the wilderness to die, Moses? Why didn't you just leave us in Egypt? They began to be bitten by these fiery serpents, the Scripture says. Moses is instructed to take this bronze serpent and hoist it up on a pole and that anyone who would look to this bronze serpent that was lifted high above the earth would be saved. Is it not a picture of the cross and the one who would be placed there that if we look to him by faith that he would save us? 
You look at Abraham and Isaac and Abraham taking his own son and placing his own son on the altar, ready to slay his own son. His own son, even bearing the wood of the fire of the altar. And just before slaying his own son. God stops Abraham's hand and tells him to turn and look and behind him, there is a ram that is caught in the brush. Is it not a picture of you and I that we deserve to be slain by our father? But instead, he has provided a substitute, a substitutionary lamb caught and sacrificed in our place. You go all the way back to Genesis 3.15, right after Adam and Eve rebelled against God and went their own way and chose to disobey him. And what is the first thing that God says when he comes into the garden? He speaks to the serpent and he says, the seed of the woman. You will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. From the very beginning, this has been the plan of God. Don't you don't you dare for a second think that Jesus life just came to a tragic end. And he just couldn't get it accomplished in the end. And he had a decent following. He fed the multitudes on the hillsides. But in the end, it all just came to an end. Don't you think that it ended tragically? You better know. And fifteen hundred years before it ever happened, God said it would. That it was in the heart of God from the beginning. And that's why Isaiah 53.10 says that it was the will of God to crush him. So why did Jesus die? Jesus died because God willed it. Beyond that, beyond that, why did Jesus die? There are two things that I would point out to you. Number one, His love. It is true that God loved us. How do you know? When you're in a tragic situation like we are when we are in our own sin, headed for for destruction and death and hell and the grave, when we're in a tragic situation, say you're say you're in a hospital, say you're you've had a loved one go through a car accident or something of the such. How do you know when someone really loves you? They come to you, don't they? They come to see you. They come to be with you. They come to the hospital. They come and sit with you and pray with you. And sometimes I go to the hospital and I don't know what to say. And I'll sit in that room and there's tragedy that has happened and, and there's nothing in the world that I can say. But then. Days or weeks later, a person will come to me and say, I just want to say thank you for being there for me. It just showed that you love me and I just appreciate you being there. So how do we know? How do we know that Jesus loves us? We know that he loves us, that he came to us. You realize that he didn't have to. We treat this thing of Christianity almost sometimes like God owes this to us. We treat this thing as trivial and casual as if God just owes us that the world revolves around us and God exists to serve us. And he had to come to the cross. No. He didn't have to come to us at all. He could have remained. He could have remained where he was and had the worship of the heavens, had the worship of the angels. He could have brought wrath and destruction on us and been totally justified in doing so. John 3.16 tells us that God so loved the world 
that he sent his only son. That whoever should believe in him will have everlasting life. They won't perish. God loves us. Romans 5.8 says that we know this, that God demonstrated his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know what that means? It means that there's nothing in you that is lovable. I often tell the story of meeting my wife and seeing my wife for the first time and seeing that smile and those eyes and just knowing that I was going to marry her. I was attracted to her. Still am attracted to her. I don't know what she sees in me, but I'm attracted to her. There was something in her that caused me to love her. The longer we've been together, the more I've learned that there is more in her that I love. But do you understand that there is nothing in you? There was nothing in the best of us that would motivate God to come to us. Of his own free will. When we were sinners, Christ died for us. So why did Jesus die? Because he loves us. But not just that. If God is just all love. then it takes out justice. Yeah, the reason Christ died is justice. You say, if, if, if God just loved us, why didn't he just come to us? He could have come and lived among us. And why would he have had to have died? He could have just went back to heaven one day. And we would have known just by his coming that he loved us. So why does he have to die? He dies because there was a grievous offense against the holiness of God that had to be justified. My uh, my cousin um, shared this with you before, but my cousin and when I was a kid, I was in the, in the 80s at some point, probably mid 80s uh, up in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. That's where I grew up in Sevierville in Gatlinburg. My cousin um, was working as a night clerk at a hotel in downtown Gatlinburg when a man uh, by the name of Tattoo Eddie came into that place with his gang and brutally murdered my cousin and the night security watchman for no reason took nothing just for joy that night what would you say if i said that tattoo eddie and those men came before the judge and the judge looked at them and said you know what i understand things happen i'm going to let you go i love you and i want to show my love for you and i just want to let you go Do you think there's justice in that? That judge should be taken down from his seat. He should be removed from his office. So why would God be any different if he looked at the sin of the world and all of the evil that is in the world that is committed by people? And he just swept it under the rug and said, you know what? I love you. Come to heaven. And that's the premise of Rob Bell's book, Love Wins. Rob Bell's book says there is no hell. There is only heaven. God loves everybody. Everybody's going. But in doing so, that is the cruelest God I could ever imagine. Who would let sin go unpunished. But God, because he loved us and because he upholds justice, every wrong will be made right. He did not pour out that wrath, that judgment on you and I, but instead he himself came to be the sacrifice, to be the substitute, 
God himself became a man, lived a perfectly righteous life so that his righteous life could be given to us and that our sinful life that must be paid for might be given to him. And God poured out judgment and wrath on him. That's why Jesus died. Instead of saying, you'd be a fool to follow a crucified Christ. Why don't instead we say, thank God that he didn't leave me in my sin, but he loved me and he came and he died in my place so that I might have the righteousness of Christ and live with him forever. Well, I went way off my notes there. Let me me finish with this. There is not just the reality of his death. There's not just the reason for his death, but there is the response to his death. If this is true, if this is true, that Jesus did indeed come and died in our place as our substitute, then there is a response. And we see this response in the person of Joseph of Arimathea. We don't know much about Joseph of Arimathea, but we see a response You see, everyone had abandoned Jesus. There were no followers around. The women were there, but the women were at a distance. They were watching from a distance. They they did not go to Pilate. They, They stayed in the background. Everyone had abandoned him, and there was no one to claim his body and to give him a proper burial. And for those criminals who died by crucifixion, who had no one to claim their bodies, you know what happened to their bodies? They were simply taken down and thrown into Gehenna. Gehenna was the trash dump. It was the landfill. It's the place Jesus talks about when he says it's the place where the fires never go out and the worm never stops eating. These bodies of these criminals would simply be taken down and heaved into this trash pile to decay with everything else. And this looked like this was going to be the fate of Jesus. But here is this secret disciple who sees the way Jesus died and sees that he died for him. And he cannot remain secret anymore. And he has to step up. And he steps up and he steps out and he shows courage. I wonder in studying this and trying to put together Mark's version, Luke's versions, Matthew's and and John's. When did Nicodemus come out of the closet? When did Nicodemus come out and stand up to be counted as a follower of Christ? Was it when he saw Joseph? Don't we gain strength from seeing a brother who says, I don't care what the world does to me, I'm going to follow my Christ. And could it be that Nicodemus comes out and begins to follow Christ boldly out in the open when he sees a brother do it? I don't know. We're not told. But Joseph here, we're told, is courageous in spite of the cost. The word here, the phrase, when it says Joseph took courage, is a, is a phrase that literally means to dare. To dare. You say, why is that important? It's important because of what he was willing to dare away. Look at the life. Look at the person of Joseph. In verse 43, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council. Number one, he was willing to dare them. He was willing to gamble, if you will, with his respect, with his reputation. He was willing to say, 
I don't care about any reputation. I don't care. Take it. After all, Joseph of Arimathea here, we're told that he is a member of the council. He's a member of the Sanhedrin, but he's left wanting. It tells us here that he himself is looking for the kingdom of God. That religion had shown him nothing. When Jesus dies in the way he does, he's willing to give up his reputation, his respect. Not only that, but his worldly position. He's a member of the council. He's one of those 70. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. He is in a select, very elite group. And he's willing to give that up. Think about this. Think about when he, as a member of this Sanhedrin, that those Pharisees, those scribes that had followed Jesus throughout his whole life and wanted to trip him up and had shot for this moment, wanting to bring Jesus to the cross, wanting to end his life. What would they think when this one among them stepped out and went and asked for the body of Christ? They would instantly disown him. They would see him as weak and a traitor. You know what the gospel means for you and me? The gospel, when we receive the gospel and see that Jesus died in our place to radically redeem us from hell, then no worldly reputation, no worldly position could matter a hill of beans. Take it all. Not only that, he's willing to gamble away or dare them to take his life itself. Think about this. It's not just the Sanhedrin, but he goes before Pilate. And what had Pilate found Jesus guilty of? Treason. He claimed to be another king. It's a threat against Rome. And here we see Joseph go to Pilate himself and ask for the body. Pilate could have very well said, I find you guilty of being sympathetic with this convicted terrorist and condemned him to the same fate and built a cross for Joseph as well. Not only that, but Joseph is willing to dare away his own possessions. The Bible here says that he buys this linen shroud, that he gives Jesus his own tomb. This was not just any tomb. The very poor of the poor were buried in boxes above the ground. Some were buried, if they were a little more fortunate, some were buried in caves. But this was no ordinary cave. This tomb had been cut out of the rock. And it had a stone door that would roll into place. This was technology here. This was expensive. This was not just for anybody. But Joseph comes to this person of Jesus, seeing the way he died and seeing the way he lived. And is willing to give it all away. What is reputation? What is position? What is what are possessions? What is life itself? If Jesus really is who he says he is. Joseph was willing to dare his life away all for the sake of knowing Christ and the fellowship of his sufferings. This is what Paul wrote about in Philippians chapter three, verses seven through ten, seven through eleven. Paul says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish 
in order that I may gain Christ to be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Here's Joseph of Arimathea willing to sacrifice it all even before Christ is raised. John Piper says it another way. John Piper is the pastor at, um, I think it's Bethlehem Baptist Church in, um, is it Maryland? No, that's Minneapolis. John Piper says this, The world does not glorify Jesus as their supreme treasure because of our health, our wealth, and, and our prosperity. Those are the same treasures that they live for. The fact that we use Jesus to get what they want makes it clear to them that we have the same treasure as they do. And it's not Jesus. He's just the ticket. And tickets are thrown away when the show begins. What the world is waiting to see, what might awaken a sense of Christ's value, is something radical. Some risk, some crazy sacrifice, some extraordinary love, something salty and bright. They may not like it when they see it. They may crucify it, but they will not be bored. Albert Moeller, who I started with, I'll close with, he says this. We are to be agents of scandal. The foolishness of the cross means that the ministry is essentially and irreducibly scandalous. And there is nothing we can do about that. There is nothing that we should try to do about that. We can't manage scandal. We must bear it. The cross of Christ stands at the center of our ministry. We must bear the scorn, the dishonor, the scandal. If you are unwilling to bear this scandal for the rest of your earthly lives, if this is not what you think you signed up for, then go home. Paul was called an idle babbler in Acts 17, 18. And he was called worse and he was treated worse. If you do what God has called you to do, you are going to be called worse and treated worse too. We can address ourselves to the culture despisers of religion or we can preach the gospel. We cannot do both. We can negotiate the faith of, or, or we can proclaim the faith. Those are the choices. We can try to maneuver our way through doctrine or we can simply teach the faith once for all delivered to the saints. That is our choice. I started at the beginning asking you or pointing out to you that the world will say to you, you are a fool for following this crucified Christ. He's dead. His life came to nothing. Yes, he was a great teacher, but he's dead. File him away with all the other great leaders in history. But when it all comes down to it, he's dead. And you now proclaim that his death is victory. You are a fool. And you can give in to that. Or you can stand up with Joseph. And you can stand up with Nicodemus. And despite what it looks like on the outside, you can be willing to dare away your life and all that comes with it for the sake of knowing him and to know the sufferings that he also shared. Would we be like Christ in everything? Or would we only be like Christ in the things that are comfortable to us? You, I, we will be somebody's fool. 
My question to you today is, whose fool will you be? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are not, we don't want to be casual with this, God. God, as a pastor, I don't want to be casual with this time of hearing your word and responding to it. God, I pray that across this room, that people across this room would treat this with the utmost seriousness. God, that across this room, that people, as much as they can control, God would not leave during this time. Would not joke during this time. Would not pack up during this time. But God, that you in this time would have our attention. God, would we be so arrested by your death, by your coming for us, by your living for us, by your enduring the cross for us, that we would not be in a hurry to rush out of this place. God, would you speak? to individuals across this room. God, I pray that in this room, God, that you'd call out Joseph's. That you would call out Nicodemus. God, that we would ask ourselves the tough questions. And God, that by your grace and for your glory, God, that we would be able to say, I will indeed stand with him in his death. When everyone else has ran away and abandoned him and calls me a fool for doing so, God, I will say I am willing to dare it all the way to stand with you. God, would you call people to life today? Would you call them out of their destruction, out of death and hell and the grave? And God, would you call them to yourself today? Would you breathe life into them, God? Would you today, as you told Nicodemus, would you move among us with your spirit? God, would you cause those in our congregation today to be born again? God, would you be gracious today in doing so? God, all across this room, God, would you also move among us with your spirit and God call Christians to take a stand for you. To not be embarrassed by your death, to not be embarrassed to take the name of Christ. To bear it in more ways than a bumper sticker or a T-shirt or a piece of jewelry. But God, that we would bear your name. If it costs us everything. God, I pray that we would be very mindful that the worst thing that the world can do to us is kill us. But for those of us who are in Christ, that is no punishment. For when they kill us, they reward us. They send us to be with you.
God, would you call and move on us? Would you bring about a bold, daring spirit in this place? God, would you send us out of here into the community? And God, that the community would not just see something radically different about us, but God, that it would not end there, but God, it would lead to them seeing you. That we would not just live it, but we would tell it. God, whatever you want to do, God, you don't need our permission. God, we're begging you. We're begging you, God, to be gracious and merciful in this place. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.